0: Welcome to A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World, with your host, Anya Cates. This podcast has one mission, to rally a generation that's been labeled and groomed as lazy, triggered and entitled, and invite us all to write a new story. One of a generation that's willing to challenge the status quo, reject black and white thinking, and opt out of each and every repressive system and box that we've been placed in. Above all else, I want to invite millennials to step up to the plate, to be vulnerable in owning our responsibility to ourselves and for walking this planet through the darkest of days. It's time to dream new dreams, write new stories, and create new futures. The great work begins. Welcome back to another episode. Today's episode is really special. Um, I recorded a conversation with my dad when I saw him in New York about a week and a half ago. Um, And thanks to you guys, several of you suggested I record a conversation with him. Um, I hadn't even thought to do it, stupidly. So thank you to my dear, supportive, thoughtful listeners for suggesting this. Um, It was really fun. I hope to make it like a series. I feel like we really only scratched the surface of stuff that I wanted to talk about with him. Um, So, as you'll see, my dad loves to talk. I'm sure he wouldn't mind if we do a part two and three and four over the course of uh, whatever, the next few years. So, this one is awesome, though. We do cover a lot of stuff, and I was really grateful that we had the time to sit down and do this. Um, I am still choking. listened to last week's episode, I talked about how I thought I was like getting a cough. I think I'm having a reaction to pollen, which is odd because I've never had allergies or anything like this before, but I'm not sick. There's no like progression of symptoms. I only have one symptom, which is that my throat is tickly and I can't stop coughing. Um, and apparently I learned from actually someone else I interviewed on the podcast a few days ago, that I guess because of all the fires and the rain, the combination of all the fires and the rain that happened in Southern California, that like seeds were unearthed that have been dormant for years. And so that's why we have this like crazy, crazy super bloom and these really high pollen levels right now. It's crazy. Like when you look out into Panga Canyon, it's, it looks hazy and I'm pretty sure (laughs) it's pollen. Um, I went on the hike, a hike the other day and came back and was like, covered, my arms were covered in pollen. So I think that's what's going on. Um, I leave town tomorrow morning for the summer, hoping the change in location might help to address these symptoms. Um, But yeah, so going away for the summer, by the time you guys listen to this, I will likely be on the road, headed out for a couple months, um, going up to Vancouver, uh, across the Canadian Rockies, down through like Montana, Wyoming, Colorado. Super fucking excited about it. Um, I've taken road trips for the past couple of years but not for this long um and in fact uh, I don't know if I've talked about this on the podcast before but when i was a teenager from like 17 to um like 2021 20, I was in a band actually and we toured across the uh, country <clears throat> we weren't like well known or anything we didn't really make much money the the tour basically supported itself. Um, but we went out for, I think the longest one was maybe six weeks. Um, and I loved it. It was, I guess my first kind of traditional road trip experience. I could have honestly done without playing the shows, like the loading in and out of equipment and the just kind of nerves associated with playing music in front of a crowd of people every night could have done without that part. But the, the road trip in and of itself was fucking amazing. Um, it's sort of cool to see how things come full circle like that. So this will be definitely the longest I've been on the road since. I'm really looking forward to it. And no hauling heavy amps and guitars and being nervous about playing music in front of people. Just got to chill by a fire. Although <clears throat> I will be interacting with people, um, planning on hosting like meetups, uh throughout the trip. So the first one is going to be in Santa Cruz tomorrow or today when you'll be listening to this Monday, May 6th, um, me and, uh, my friend, Chris Ryan, Kyle Tierman, who both have podcasts. I know we have some listeners in common. We're going to be hosting a little casual, super laid back get together at a place called castaways, I believe on Portola drive in Santa Cruz. So if you live in Santa Cruz, I know I have, um, a fair amount of fans there come hang out, have a beer, meet other cool people. Um, I do, I've always talked about how so much of this podcast for me was, um, uh, cannot talk was, uh, I really wanted to meet people and help other people meet people. Um, and so I'm really looking forward to kind of doing that this summer and meeting people face to face as I travel about. So I will announce other, um, places that will be in meetups that we'll be doing both on Instagram and on here. Um, so if you don't follow me on Instagram, it's just at Anya dot I would recommend doing that. That's where you'll get the most up-to-date info. Um, and hope to meet as many of, po- as many of you as possible while I'm on the road. Um, if you are not a Patreon supporter, um, I would love if you were, <laughs> if you go to patreon.com slash Anya Cates, um, and donate just a few dollars a month, as much as you can afford. I would really appreciate it. Not only will you help me keep this show on the air um, and keep me employed, but also you'll get access to all sorts of bonus stuff. So I do a monthly um, bonus episode. I release monthly worksheets on various topics. Um, I do a weekly column of inspiration. So I send out like an article and a video and music that I've been into. Um, do that weekly. So patreon.com slash Anya Cates. If you can't do that, just listening is support enough. I really appreciate it. Telling your friends, leaving some stars, subscribing on iTunes, leaving a review. All of that is greatly appreciated. Um, <clears throat> before I choke myself to death over here, um, I think I'm might, I might, we'll see today. I'm going to do it. i gonna play two songs. I'm gonna play you in with a song and play a song at the end. I couldn't, basically, I couldn't decide what song to play for this episode, so I decided to choose two. Um, <clears throat> the one I'm going to play you in with is, um, called, uh, in BC, oh God, Bicicletta, in Bicicletta, I think that's how you say by bicycle in Italian, <laughs> and apologies if I just totally butchered that, um. It is a song from the score to a movie called The Postman, Postman, which is also in Italian, El Postino. Um, Never seen that movie, but my dad used to play this score when I was a kid for my brother and I. We would lay in his giant bed. Uh, He actually moved his bed into the dining living room area in the apartment that he that we grew up in with him, he rented out the master bedroom in his apartment. And my brother and I each had our own room. It was a three bedroom apartment, but that meant he didn't have a bedroom. So he put his bed in the dining room as one does. Um, This enormous kink size bed. It sounds weirder than it was. It was like an open floor plan. There was just kind of turned it into this like giant studio situation. Anyway, my brother and I would pile into his giant bed in the living room slash dining room. And he would play this score Um, And it was super relaxing. We fell asleep to it. And he would read us The Min Pins by Roald Dahl. Um, So I always associate this music with The Min Pins. I don't know if you guys are familiar with The Min Pins, but it's this book about little tiny people. Um, And I always sort of imagine this like magical, classical music as the music that if The Min Pins was a movie, this would be in the background. (laughs) Um, So this is one of those songs I will play you in with that appropriately. We recorded this podcast. My dad was sitting in his bed, so lots of weird connections and parallels there. Um, So yeah, I'm going to play you in with this song, and then I'll play another song at the end, Um, and maybe I'll make this a thing, because music is cool, and I like sharing it with you guys. Uh, I have a Spotify playlist, by the way, in case you want to keep tabs on the music that I play on each episode. It's just called A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World. A note, I have to, someone asked if I could put together a document of all the books that my guests recommend on each episode, which I thought was a really cool idea. I haven't figured out quite how to do that or where to post it. Um, I still don't really have a website. It's like half done. I just sort of abandoned it because I didn't like it very much and I need to rebuild it. If anyone is a website designer and wants to add a website to their portfolio, hit me up. Um, otherwise I'm just going to scrap it and start again and do it myself in Squarespace. Um, but just a note, put a pin in that. I need to make a document for you all with all those books. Of course, I think I forgot to ask my dad to recommend a book because it was kind of a unique episode. It's not like my dad has like a website where you can go find him. So it wasn't in that mode. Um, but we do actually talk about some books that he gave me growing up. So I guess that counts anyway. Um, enjoy this conversation and I will catch you on the other side of the episode. right so i'm um I'm sitting here with my dad, who is luxuriating in his bed with a million pillows, which is very like emblematic, I feel like of you to do that we're recording this in a bed. i've never recorded a podcast with someone sitting in a bed.
1: Oh no, well, to be clear, you're sitting in a chair, right, just so people don't think we're in bed together. <laughs> that seems like the wrong way to start.
0: Although that is like that would probably be fine <laughs> given our relationship. I
1: guess, yes. Yes. <laughs> that would be fine
0: with that. Um but yeah, I'm I'm sitting in the chair and you're sitting in the bed, which is appropriate. You're like on a throne. Um so yeah, I did you ever think you'd be interviewed on your daughter's podcast?
1: <laughs> I mean I'm not so sure that exact same thought wandered across my brain, but it doesn't feel surprising somehow <laughs> now that it's happening.
0: Yeah. So, I basically said that I wanted to record a podcast with you because you're kind of famous on the podcast already. I talk about you a lot um, and thought it might be cool to have people here. I would say, probably, an unconventional father daughter relationship uh, publicized. (laughs) Um,
1: Great. I mean, this is fame and publicity so far. This is, (laughs) yeah, I almost feel like I should have an agent.
0: Yeah. Um, so where to begin? I guess um, it's funny when I tell people my dad is gay, one of the things they ask a lot was, did you know that when you married my mom? Um, and I I find that whole thing fascinating, like, because you did to some extent know that you had attraction to men. Um, but I think given like the time period and what was going on in the world, like, I would love to hear more about that from you. Like, why did you make that decision?
1: I mean, I think, first of all, the question is pretty normal because I think the the typical narrative, uh, particularly for men in my generation, but not necessarily or not only men in my generation, is that men were closeted and married because they thought that was the right thing to do. And then ultimately came to a place where they recognized that they were gay, and so that didn't it didn't make sense any longer so that's that's sort of the normal narrative, so I think it's understandable that people sort of um make that assumption. I think it's also partly because uh ambiguity is difficult for people to grasp, and so the 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 thing that um a man who is gay with children who used to be married presents it's sort of the cognitive dissonance of that, right? Well, wait a minute. I have to make that make sense. Am I I need to explain that story to myself if you're the listener? And so you go to what feels like the most sensible explanation, which is, I don't know if binary is right in this world, but sort of the same black and white thing. You're either gay or you're straight. And so therefore, if you, if you were formerly married and have children you must have been straight then and are now gay because I can make that make sense in my head. I know this is sort of stating the obvious, but um, it's actually kind of interesting to get down to the basics of it um, because it is such a universal response. Um, it's what everyone says. It's funny how life treats you, a life questions like that come up. Like I have a sort of related but unrelated thing about now I live in two different cities and the very first question everyone asks me no matter how well they know me or not is so how much time do you spend in each place and I think it's sort of another example of people needing to um, make things fit needing people to understand um, and particularly to relate um, somebody else's experience to concepts which they've which you know whatever they've accepted or internalized in one way or another um, I think my own story was, um, I mean, in some ways it could be explained that way, but certainly, um, it, it's, it's not true. I mean, I think the typical story is that men are gay and it's particularly usually men. Um, that's at least the story we're talking about. So, um, I'm sure there are lots of gay women who are married that maybe have similar experiences. Um, so, so yeah, uh, I mean, when I was an adolescent, I, Um, lost my virginity pretty early in adolescence and had sex with, um, a woman, I think at the time and a boy, I guess is how I'd have to say that he was 13 or 14 as was I. Um, and the woman was much older, but within, you know, I think six weeks of each other. And I frequently sort of flip-flopped between, um, boyfriends and girlfriends, um, And also I think I had, I didn't exactly have anonymous female, um, lovers or sexual encounters. And I had a, anonymous is not necessarily the right word, but sort of one night stands were pretty common with men. Whereas, um, my relationships with women tended to be, um, more, um, based around a relationship, um, which I'm not so sure I've ever actually really thought of it in exactly that way. Um sort of want to go back and think about that story, and when I'm one of the stories I was telling myself at the time is I assumed that I was some version of bisexual, which isn't to say that I was equally attracted to men and women, but I felt like I was a little bit of both, and I noticed myself having more um emotionally satisfying connections. With women who seemed to be willing to be intimate and be close and um, do the things that sort of felt like people who cared about each other did, um, including acting like a couple. I don't know, making a meal together, doing whatever it was. Those those relationships felt more uh, emotionally actualized, um, and um, I think even at the time, I knew that the sort of sexual attraction for men was was more intense. But it was less, it was also full of all kinds of Sturm und Drang, and there was, you know, uh, mainly just a lot of what I witnessed as um, unwilling, unwillingness on men's part to be, to do any of those things, which I just said, to sort of act in any kind of intimate way, which I felt sort of, I was thinking about that. I was like, well, wow, if I have to choose between these two things, the emotionally satisfying, you know, the intimate relationship seems like it could be a place where, um, uh, you know, more intimacy could be developed. And then I, so I think I imagined in my head, therefore the sex over time would be different. And, um, I think I knew enough to know that, um, uh, sex life inside a long-term intimate relationship was going to be different than sex with somebody who didn't know that well. Um, and so I was sort of hopeful that, um, an intimate, long-term intimate relationship with a woman was going to lead me to some place which I had been before. That's a very long-winded answer to your that's question. That's good.
0: You're good at this. I don't have to do um, much of anything. <laughs>
1: uh, that's the measure of being good. Okay. Um, I guess the other thing, you know, the, the uh, you know, I'm a I'm a theater person, right? So I always look for an inciting incident in a story. And um, in um, 1981, when I first moved to New York. Uh, And I was 21 years old And I was sort of like It just doesn't get any better For having sex in your life Than when you're 21 Just having arrived in New York City in 1981 I mean it was available It was everywhere And then suddenly there was also this Strange disease And people were getting it And starting to die And um, we didn't have an explanation for it at the time And I think it cemented um, all. It was almost as if the universe was trying to tell me see um sex with men is temporal and um uh, exciting and but um but really dangerous not just emotionally dangerous but um physically dangerous could kill you literally kill you um and so you know whatever ability i had to Cultivate my faith that a long-term relationship with a woman was what was right for me, it, it also became a kind of urgent necessity, and I felt like I had a choice that other people didn't have. Um, so going back to your original question, when somebody says to you, oh, so you were closeted and married... Um, I mean, I think even just the rendition that I just gave you right now is a relatively surface level summary of what happened. And so, (laughs) you know, unless I'm prepared to hand somebody a 360-page paper, (laughs) there's just kind of no way out of that story. And so what I typically say is, yeah, yeah, I know what you're thinking. And um, no, my story is not the normal narrative. And uh, if you've got several hours – and you're interested in a bottle of wine, you know, maybe I can tell you the whole thing, but, um, it's just, it doesn't really want to be reduced. Um,
0: I remember you saying something, uh, and this is sort of something I repeat, which I think is pretty accurate to what you just said was that even if it was relatively unconscious, that, that, that there was this idea, especially at that time in the world, like, well, if I could just be straight and live that life and, have kids and marry a woman like things might be easier than this other choice which seems riskier dangerous or less stable in some way
1: yeah i mean i don't i think there's no question that that sort of overlay existed in the world and i think the version of that story that you're describing is on a relative scale, a pretty enlightened way of describing because what you're talking about now, of course, people no longer think of it as a choice. Um, but at the time, the idea that um if you could choose not to be gay, you would, it was sort of an interesting sort of um uh poor man's version of salvation, right? So because from a from a sort of moral perspective, it was on this side of, oh gays are sick. It's an illness. So the next step in that is, oh, well, you know, if I could choose not to be gay, I would, which I think arguably is a closeted way of saying gays are sick. But uh, it was a more palatable idea. I mean, my own um, particular orientation, pun intended, um, around all that was um, a little bit complicated in the sense that my had two parents who were psychologists who were appropriately and inappropriately, um, sharing all kinds of information from me and including me in group therapy sessions with, with adults. And, um, you know, I was pretty, um, well, it depends on how you look at it, right? I think I was precocious and, um, wildly overstimulated and, um, probably overwhelmed with all kinds of information that I didn't yet have the maturity to um and man, maybe you still don't have the maturity to sort of understand um but while my parents didn't go so far you know I never thought that either one of my parents thought there was anything wrong with me for um being gay or being bi um they did express both of them expressed some version of um, remorse or regret over things maybe that they hadn't done as parents, which might've made a difference, the whole sort of nature versus nurture argument. And at the time it was not a, um, I think it would have been, um, it's interesting. I'm not sure that people really understood being gay as a choice or not a choice. It's almost as if the dichotomy, which seems so clear to us now, right? That the dichotomy is either you, Accept the truth of the situation, which is that people are born gay. I'm sorry, it's just the truth, empirically, not just subjectively. Or you're holding on to some idea that that it's uh, some kind of illness or some kind of choice, which is just hogwash. <laughs> and anybody who's lived with a gay person, or certainly anybody who's gay, knows that it's hogwash. Um, but at the time, the choice wasn't so black and white. It was more like, well. Not unlike the situation with AIDS where people didn't know it. The whole situation around homosexuality was a little bit more like we don't really know what combination of nature and nurture it is. So to the extent that it's nurture and to the extent we could have done something different or to the extent this is an adolescent phase that you're going to grow out of. This is my parents talking now. um, We wish for you that you would be straight because your life would be easier. Um, Again, how much that masked some kind of unconscious um, homophobia or bias against gay people, you know, none of us will ever know.
0: Yeah. I was, I was watching an interview with, um, Pete jedge that last name will never mm. be easy to pronounce, but, uh, he said something, he was talking to Rachel Maddow and she, they were talking about the difficulty of being gay versus the difficulty of being in the closet. And he said something that was like, you know, I, it took a long time for me to come out to myself, first of all. So it wasn't as if I was hiding. I was not fully aligned in that, in that part of my identity. And he said, like, he said, there's a war that breaks out inside of you when you start to realize or realize that you're something you might be slightly afraid of. And I feel like this can be applied anywhere, right? For me, I feel like I made a lot of choices in my life to live a certain life because... I didn't think the one I wanted was realistic or it seemed more risky or that I would be shunned because of it, even if that wasn't explicit. Um, Like I see now again, like it wasn't, I don't feel like it was even a choice, but I think we make those decisions a lot in a way that Mm -hmm. might not be totally conscious of like, well, if I could just do that, it would be simpler. And maybe a means by which to kind of deny our own, facing our own truths too. Well,
1: yeah, and it seems to me it's inseparable from the context in which you're trying to face those truths, right? So, um, I mean, I don't think we can, it's hard enough to understand what is the sort of dark forest of our own unconscious and what motivates us. But when you think about complex social systems and the the sort of collective unconscious behavior of a society and, um, the way that things overt and covert are introduced to you, um, how do any of us ever sort out, um, why we do that? Um, I mean, you know, I, I, I guess on some basic level, people just want everyone to be like them. Right. And they're threatened by those things that are not like them because I don't know why probably it's different for everybody, but, um, I think it's impossible to, to sort of, um, uh, understand those. I think we, we, I think we have a tendency of sort of looking at our own sort of subjective, singular vision of how did I deal with this thing? And, um, the more I think about this and look back on it, um, and also just think about the way in which I've acted in my entire life around all kinds of things. So much of it seems sort of like it's the sort of, you know, the, the soup of the social construct that I'm in and how I understand myself in relationship to that and how, when presented with the stimulus of me, how the various elements of society react and then how I counter react to what I presume to be those reactions. it pretty soon yeah. you're lost in a kind of, you know, double facing mirror version of not ever being able to sort any of it out. But, um, certainly there's some, um, there's some truisms around, um, the, the need to not be different, the need to, um, and I think so much of that has to do, it's interesting, we could keep coming back to that thing we started talking about, which is the way that people need to understand they want the dissonance in their heads very difficult for them. So yeah. to the extent that you're, the just the motivation to get you to be a certain way may have nothing to do more than just the sort of cognitive discomfort that's caused when presented with stimuli that you can't sort out. Uh, and so while we can label that uh, bias and and, uh, homophobia and whatever else it is, racism, on some level, I think it sort of starts with uh, I can't organize this information that I'm being presented with. And so my first impulse is to um, (laughs) impose on it, right, to to shape it into something that I can understand. And if not be like me, then at least let me um, diagnose it and, and contextualize it and explain it in terms which makes sense for me. Yeah. Um all of which is um not great for anybody's individuation or actualization right it's like a what a what a weird thing that we have to deal with all that kind of blowback just to being who we are
0: yeah i' feel, uh, we've had discussions before I remember, and I think i've repeated this on the podcast about like the fluidity of these things that you're not only having to deal with the fact that you are a growing and evolving person. So that's totally shifting, but also that culture and society is also moving and shifting. So when you talk about social construct, you know, you can't have the same discussion one year and then Mm -hmm. 10 years later, because things are changing and moving. So you have to like constantly be walking on (laughs) ground that is shifting. Mm -hmm. And I, I do find I, for me to, be aware of that and embrace it and kind of like have fun, kind of be like, Oh, I'm on this like fun ride. Mm-hmm. And like, I don't really know how anything is defined as feels to me freeing. Right, um, but right. I can see and have experience for a lot of people that just to consider that, uh, in the way in which it calls into question, the basis of one's own identity is like the most horrifying thing that you could do. Um, yeah,
1: right. The sort of you're into the kind of roller coaster ride of it and not everybody is. I mean, it's interesting, as you were talking about it, too, I think that one of the things that um, I do think helps, and I wish I were more educated than I was, but I've always sort of been interested in history and understanding that there's, yes, it's true that society is always changing, but there are patterns for sure. Uh, and we, when the more we know about other cultures and and other and, and history, I think the – we can start to sort of sort out some of that stuff a little bit easier and sort of find some peace in all that. Um, I think it's one of the things that about, um, you know, Americans that I wish were more different is they wish they were more exposed to other cultures, uh, more readily. And I think that's a downside in our, in our country that unlike, you know, other continents in particular Europe, where, um, there's so many different cultures that are mixing in. Um, that's an advantage. Anyway, we get very, we're getting very heady and philosophical. (laughs) Um, so, I mean, I, interesting to sort of go circle back to your original question. It was, um, it was, uh, the sort of combination of being afraid of dying and being sort of unsatisfied emotionally in my relationships with men, which could have just been, you know, me picking all the wrong ones. Um, and also, you know, I was 21 at the time. I mean, like 21 year old, gay men are not like the best targets for sort of, you know... I'd say
0: 21-year-old anybody. Right, right. And
1: these are not the places that you go for intimate um, satisfaction. Of course, that was another, another curse that I was living with is that because my parents were psychologists and because so much of what the work they did and the values that I absorbed had to do with the interactions around interpersonal relationships, I really knew. I mean, I knew how to get close to somebody. I knew what it was like to reveal myself. I knew what it was like to, um, express feelings of being hurt or being excited or being happy or aroused or whatever it was. I was pretty comfortable reporting those things in sort of real time and, and had learned m- on multiple occasions, the incredible satisfaction that you get when you're with another person, whether that person's your romantic partner or just your friend, uh, or some something in between those two things. Um, where the the um, you know just the what is it the the traffic of intimacy and so launching into relationships with gay men in again anyway as you say anybody in their early twenties but gay men in particular who had this you know I think arguably another layer of sort of. You know, um, in feelings of confusion and hatred and just, you know, a lot of self-hatred and all that, uh, anger, um, to deal with made them not particularly good, um, candidates for, um, satisfying emotional interactions, uh, and meeting a very, um, you know, your, your mom, uh, was very, um, incredibly charismatic, um, and 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 very persuasive and wanted what she wanted and so it I was wonder a bit where
0: of, I got that from
1: uh, yeah right exactly it was a <laughs> bit of a um literally being swept up into a series of things um uh, and you know i look back now we had kids very quickly um and i'm so grateful i mean i of course i wouldn't i mean even if you weren't sitting in the room i would tell anybody like it was one of the best things that ever happened to me and um i was really unprepared for um except in the most abstract ways about what being a parent was. And it was, while very demanding, um, physically and otherwise, it was also um, such a joyous experience. Um, And uh, I think one could make one's life's work just being a parent. I'm trying to figure that out. It's it's a a fabulously underrated art form. Um, So... So whatever, why ever it happened, I sure as hell am glad it did. And I wouldn't write it any other way.
0: Do you feel like you made any sort of like intentional, I mean, certainly this happened regardless, um, intentional decision when you became a father in regard to raising me and Mika about like how you were going to embrace, I don't know, complexity and nuance and kind of this like... Uh, social constructionism type way of looking at the world? Like, was that conscious at all? I
1: mean, wow. I wish I could take credit for having thought of it in quite that way. But, um, <laughs> I think it really boiled down to one thing that I became aware of, and then I had been working on in therapy and it was very much the driving force for me having the courage to separate and ultimately get divorced from your mom. And that required courage because of what it potentially meant for the, um, hazard on my relationship with you guys and contact i was going to have with you guys that was my main preoccupation and that was the notion of shame uh, and i think i became aware at um, about and i it's interesting because i had you know having experimented so much if that's the right way to describe it um sexually throughout my entire adolescence i didn't feel particularly ashamed of being gay and as i said my parents didn't really invite me to feel ashamed and i sort of wore it as a sort of badge of um you know it was sort of what made me interesting right I mean like um, you know I could say I mean I I remember um, I got busted for not appearing in court once I got walked through the school cafeteria in handcuffs by an insane cop and but the cred that that gave me around school was (laughs) like somebody who had been busted and not for drugs was just sort of amazing it's a little disappointing to tell everybody it's because I missed a court date but nonetheless the point being that the sort of being you know experimenting sexually or being sort of open and you know you know the version of having long hair and wearing tie-dye jeans in terms of my sexual activity was uh was something that I thought was pretty cool but I think what I became aware of once I was married and I was forced sort of back into a closet in a way because in the same way that I can't answer your question about why people want me to fit into, oh, you were closeted and then you came mm-hmm. out. Unfortunately, I don't fit into that normal story. And in the same way, when I was married and somebody comes, they make a whole set of assumptions about you, right? So you're married. So you must be straight. So then when the guys huddle together at the party, having a beer and the women are all in the kitchen, they're talking about the girls they used to date in high school or, you know, lock the version of locker room talk or talking about sports And what the fuck am I going to talk about, right? Because I didn't, I mean, first of all, so I'm going to say, oh, well, I know that I'm married now, but actually, you know, I sucked cock when I was, like, I'm really not going to say that in that context. And so I just chose not to say it. And um, what I found out over time was that not only was I dealing with this weird kind of thing between me and other people. They were making it. I could sort of live with the assumptions they made about me because, you know, who cares? Um, but there, it was very difficult for me to get to be close to anybody in any way because there were so many assumptions, understandably, right? I'm not pointing my finger at them necessarily that they were making about who I was. And trying to get myself out of that left me feeling like it was almost as if I was disappearing, like I was – I had a vision of it at the time of like –
0: Disassociated.
1: Well, whitewashing, actually. I mean, I just sort of felt like I was literally vanishing from existence and and not only in the present day but in the past and then really starting to wonder who I was. And I think in the process, that whole thing sort of triggered a kind of connection to a a very, very old feeling of shame – um, and not necessarily uh, just around my orientation, but really connecting with my father, who I think I um, understood on some level, was ashamed of himself. And then I started to realize that that was inherited by him from his father and his father by that, his, that my, my grandfather and great-great-grandfather. And that there had been a kind of, um, even though I can't really tell you how I know all this, I just sort of, you know, you just know things, right? you become to know them. And I, I was able to say that there is this thing and it's called shame. And, um, I remember thinking that if I stayed married and figured out a way to navigate all that, that I was not going to be able to escape the sort of shroud of shame. And I was very determined that you and Mika, that I sort of stopped that, right? Like this, I was sort of, I can remember thinking that fucking stops here. Okay. Like, I'm sorry that it's been passed down through all the men in my generation. And and I recognize that I have a huge backpack of shame to carry around, and I'm going to take it off and not carry it with me. And I sure as hell am not going to teach it to my kids. And um, I didn't really have much more than that. Um, So your question where you gave me all kinds of credit for thinking (laughs) in, in complex ways was really it wasn't so much about how I'm going to be so enlightened. Yeah. The 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 um the sort of organizing theme around that is anything that invites or perpetuates or that creates feelings of shame doesn't belong in my life in any way right. because there's nothing to be ashamed of, um, and there was no better teacher. I mean, this is what's so amazing about this is that once that decision had been made around raising you guys, children are of course. Completely free of shame, right? Inherently. And so being around the two of you who would run around naked or do whatever you would do or act silly or talk in a high voice or sing or cry or, um, do whatever just your natural impulses did was such an amazing reminder to be around because I could just look and go, yeah, I just want to be more like you, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so it was this, it was this fascinating, um, and really incredibly rewarding kind of, um, Thing that we were doing for each other, as as I was providing a space for you not to feel ashamed, you were you guys were teaching me what people who aren't ashamed act like, mm-hmm. and so it, I think we made progress in ways that are faster than uh, either one of us would have done in a different situation. I don't think I've ever quite thought of it in that way until talking about it right now. But, um, I do remember, I've often said that, that I thought you guys reparented me as I parented you. And I think that was a key part of it is that your um, my determination to eliminate shame and your natural, um, uh, childlike, um, lack of awareness of, uh, you know, or lack of judgment, um, was a, powerful um we were a great team the three of us in that regard
0: it reminds me of the story of when i basically like forced you to tell me how sex worked (laughs) right yes (laughs) you should tell that story
1: well i remember that you know the 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 the, you know the training we got and whatever from books or whatever was that you weighed you know you had to take cues from your kids about when it was Um, how to talk about sex. This was certainly not something that was present in my upbringing because my parents were, you know, um, really, you know, became professional psychologists in the 60s. And that was quite a different, that was, you know, no holes barred, no boundaries. Everything is up for grabs, um, literally and and figuratively. Um, And uh, so I was waiting for cues. And I remember you would ask me, you know, we'd say, oh, you'd ask me how, babies were made or some, some, your version of that question. And then I, I sort of said, well, you know, if the mother and father are feeling loving and feeling close to each other, they, they lie in bed, you know, they close. And, um, and you just kept pressing. I mean, you were, you were a woman, a a girl on a mission. You're like, no dad. And and quite annoyed with me. I remember (laughs) because you were, you were sort of on to me. You were like, I know what you're doing. And, um, I remember you saying, no, 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 I want to know specifically (laughs) how it happens. And I said, well, you know, they get close to each other physically and there's sort of a physical connection. And you were like, no, dad, um, I want you said I remember you saying I want to know exactly what happens. Tell me exactly what happens. You must have used the word exactly three or four times. So I sort of, you know, finally, all right, well, man puts his penis in the woman's vagina and i remember you looked at like <laughs> looked incredibly surprised by that answer and i what was funny about that is i thought you were fully expecting that answer you were just kind of asking me to ratify something which you'd already seen a picture of but you looked like you had never heard or even thought of that concept before and your eyes got really big and you said for real and i was like yeah and you ran into your room and i didn't see you for hours after that <laughs> So, yes, I yeah. guess that was one of those things where you didn't know. You were curious, right? So you didn't have any shame about the question. But yeah. um, but it sure felt like I was, uh, you know, talking about somebody with a, a lettuce head or something. I mean, it's just <laughs> the most bizarre thing you'd ever heard of.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I do think there was something that you did that I do think was pretty starkly different from other fathers or parents in general that I think— you sort of gave us more credit I think than parents give their kids to understand things and learn things and like just not being patronizing or what's that word? Like you were, especially as my dad, you infantilizing, infantilizing. Yeah.
1: Right. I mean, that's interesting that you say that. I'm, I'm not so sure again. I mean, I'm not so sure that's actually what was going on. I think that makes perfect sense. That that's how you were experiencing it. And I think, and i think that's generally accepted as sort of a good thing that you know if you're a kid especially you don't like adults who talk down to you um but you know like everything it's it's degrees right because if you don't if you give kids too much credit you know right. you right so you have to you have to to calibrate that and i think i think what was happening more at the time is actually an extension of what i was talking about earlier which is that as you asked me questions about things kind of not unlike you're doing right now you I felt invited to think about things in a new way. And because you were teaching me as much as I was teaching you, when you would say things, it wasn't that I, I sort of, I was operating from the assumption that you had important things to say, even if not with the sort of adult maturity or experience that I would have had, but that you were saying things from a, from a place of childlike wisdom. And so when you asked me a question about something, I would stop and and consider it in a thoughtful way and not just let it trigger, you know, answer number 37 that I have on file, um, really thinking, well, I wonder, Oh, well, wait a minute. You know, the way you're asking that question makes me wonder. So then I think I would ask you a question back and say, well, when you say such and such, what do you mean? And, Mm -hmm. and how would you react? And we would get into this kind of iterative dialogue where we were each teaching each other about something. And I think it's not surprising to me that your experience when you came out the other end of that was that you weren't being diminished or infantilized. You were, I was engaging with you like a real person who had an impact on me and who, whose questions I took seriously because I did.
2: Yeah.
0: Well, certainly that just like question and questioning in and of itself was really healthy um, at uh, one moment that I talk about a lot was you gave me Michael Warner's book, the trouble with normal. Mm. I think like, I don't know how young I no, was, it's not Michael but
1: Warner. It's, um, yes,
0: it is. It's, it's,
1: I thought that was, that's Michael. I thought it was Andrew yeah. Sullivan. No, no, I'm no. thinking of Andrew Sullivan or something else, right? It's I'm that
0: bad. neon. It's like orange and it has a bunch yeah, of, right, yeah, right. Yeah. have sworn that was, I have this very big goal of getting Michael Warner on the podcast, actually. Um, Uh, But anyway, that book was mind-blowing to me. Um, And I think almost even, maybe not mind-blowing to you at the time, but I remember you sharing it with me in the sense of, like, this is really cool. Like, there's there's this gay guy, and he's questioning the entire premise of fighting for gay marriage. Mm -hmm. And that was, I mean at the time, I think probably, like, the peak of the fight for that and mm-hmm. to to think outside that box and be like, oh, wait a second, is that just perpetuating heteronormative bullshit and we should be thinking outside the box mm-hmm. in regard to families? And
1: I don't think people were even using the word heteronormative at the time. I think <clears> yeah, it, maybe I, not. I mean, maybe people in sort of his the, the circles that right. writer was in, but oh, it certainly yeah. wasn't. I mean, I remember for me it felt like a revolutionary idea that um, that the whole... There was one quote, and I think it's in that book, about that being gay and wanting to be married, you know, I'm going to heterosexualize my gayness in such a way where, you know, what gay people do is we have tea dances or we have anonymous sex in the park, right? And, like, while that may have been the result of being oppressed and not having – be able to be out about our relationships, there's something about anonymous sex in the park, which I'm not – fully prepared to give up because it has sort of like, well, <laughs> i kind of fun about that. Um, and I remember thinking that was, that dawned on me in such a way, um, that, that it made me start thinking about what it was about my personality that was intrinsically gay and what did it mean to be gay and, and not just, and not just where you had sex or who you had sex with, but everything about your, your sort of, um, way of dealing with the world, um, uh, that I thought it was, it was a wonderfully eye opening idea about not wanting to give up and I wanted to give that up in some way. Um, and just, and, and, as you say, the whole idea of, you know, fuck normal. I mean, what is normal? Like, what is that? Of course it's a complete illusion. There yeah. is no such thing. And, and we're all being made miserable in one way or another, even if you're on the normative scale for your sexual orientation or your gender, you're, you're non-normative in some other way and nobody fucking fits into being normative. So we have a bunch of people, walking around feeling like there's something wrong with them when the whole concept of the way you should normally be is so oppressive. I'm not saying anything. Lots of people haven't said better, but um, yeah, but yeah, around the, around the issues of, um, uh, sexuality, that was a, I don't know, maybe, maybe too early to give you the book.
0: <laughs> no, I mean, I thought it, I, I, it true. And I don't actually even know if it, I remember I tell the story of my progression of like understanding what a social construction was and i think it started the moment mm-hmm. i found out you were a gay mm-hmm. which was that i assumed when i saw you again right because for five years you'd been in a relationship with a man i'd witnessed you guys be intimate you were living together i mean it didn't even cross my mind <laughs> which is it still blows my mind that that's true but i didn't it was just up oh, my dad's friend like yeah whatever they hold hands eh. like didn't even think to think about it um And then sort of roughly understood that this word gay existed. There was this Mm. thing Mm -hmm. that clearly I had heard the word, but I didn't associate it with you. I didn't really understand what it was. And then finally learned that this word that I knew was somehow not great, like not good, was associated with you. And I thought... That what would happen was the next time I saw you that day that I found out was that you were going to walk in the door and have horns. I mean, this is literally where my 10-year-old mind went, which is like, oh, shit. Mm. Like, I missed something this whole time, and my dad's actually a monster. (laughs) The true
1: nature of me would be revealed to you. And
0: then, but when you came and you were the same, like the dad I knew and loved, I realized... That there were these things that we did. There were these like labels and words Mm. for things that we applied meaning to, but that had that either were just untrue or at the very least there were outliers. There were exceptions to those rules. But had no way to understand that. I think it just made me start questioning everything. Mm. Of like, Mm -hmm. is that really what it is or is that just something we've made up?
1: Right. Um, right. Or is this thing what it appears to be, or is it something that has yet to (laughs) reveal itself to me? I'm sure in both ways. I mean, in some ways you must have been the trauma of sort of wait a minute what this like you've been staring at this person for your whole life and then there's this whole thing about themself about them that which you're only now learning must must have been very destabilizing for you at the time to think about how come i didn't know that and what did that mean and yeah what does that mean about does everything have a secret right is right. every right so,
0: yeah i actually think i was just talking about this last night that i think because i you know I'm very anti-secrets, like, I'm very anti-beating around the bush, like, if someone has an issue and they want to, like, tiptoe around it with me because they're afraid that they'll hurt my feelings, like, it will hurt my feelings way more in the lack of directness, Mm -hmm. and I remember that sentiment, too, of finding out that you were gay and being like, everybody knows this but me, like, Mm -hmm. my teachers know, my, like, some of my friends' parents know, my, um... You know, and of course, who knows like what I was capable of figuring out at what age, but certainly I can track back that like, no, I'm adult enough to understand. Mm. You can tell me you can, like, you don't need to but that's keep That's the anything. blissfulness
1: of youth, right? Is yeah. the is the lack of uh, the ignorance to think that you know more than you know, which is, right. which is a blissful state <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> until yeah. you figure out that you're actually yeah. full of shit and hardly yeah. know anything. Yeah.
0: But yeah, there was, and then there was this interesting progression. I remember then getting Michael Warner's book. And I don't think he used the term social construction either, but that just like added another layer to this questioning. And then I remember going to college and I took a course called the invention of homosexuality. And that's where I heard the term social construction used for the Mm -hmm. first time. And I think equated the construction was taking place as a result of culture and society, right? Like where was this coming from? Um, And it finally came full circle and was like, oh, my God, I totally get it now. And I know how to view the world in that way.
1: Well, it's interesting there. You've sort of proven the point, too, that we were talking about earlier, that in addition to sort of accepting that culture is a constant, dynamic, changing state, that there are um, things, patterns that have been repeating themselves. And, And to look back hundreds of years or thousands of years, even to a time when, men had sex with other men or men had sex with boys. And it and wasn't, that, right. nobody called gay. it what right. it was. It was just like a thing you did like, right. you know, coaching um, soccer uh, right. <laughs> or the right. social equivalent of that <laughs> yeah. at the time. Uh, it really does make you start to think more um, you know, in more complex ways about how we impose how we individually and collectively impose ideas yeah. on each other, which can be probably helpful. I mean, there must there must be reasons for those social constructions as long as you have some kind of awareness of them,
0: well, they yeah, they can be really
1: dangerous, too, and what they do.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think they're coming from all different sorts of places. Although, and the next question I was going to ask you was about, like, what you struggled with in regard to the intersection of then after you decided to get divorced. Now I'm a gay man and I have kids and they're kids from this <laughs> heterosexual marriage. I remember you took me to a men, gay men's group. Right, Which I just gay fathers, re- yeah. gay
1: fathers group, right. Um,
0: and it was shocking to me to hear their stories because I feel like I remember that they were not like our situation. Right, uh, right. Um, either that they were closeted or like it was just very traumatic. Um, but right. I, I brought that up because I think, you know, what I've realized of kind of operating within unconventional spaces as as much as we want to... Um, opt out of norms and come up with our own sort of instinctual way of being, we still I think this guy Gabor Mate, who I really like, has a quote that's something like we have two instincts as humans to be authentic and to belong. And if Hmm. one is at risk for the other we will choose belonging over authenticity. Oh
1: yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so I think probably for survival, if nothing else. Yeah, right. right of course. Well, who needs it, to be who needs to be authentic when you're there yeah. alone getting eaten by the tigers? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Better to go with the group. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, right. So I think it's like we societies creating all of these boxes and structures for people, which might be coming from not so great a place, but we're having this normal human response, which is well. I don't want to be alone and be eaten by the tiger. So I might as well like punch the clock and go to work and marry the right. woman and
1: wear the blue blazer with, and do whatever exactly, it is that I need to do. Exactly, right, to yeah. Fit in.
0: Yeah. And Michael Warner, actually, I watched an interview with him recently and, um, you know, he talked about how just the, when you step out of those boxes, even one of them, the more you opt out the less likely you are to fall victim, I think he, he called it to, uh, this cultural blackmail (laughs) of like, you must do this or you will, Mm. you know, perish. Um, and I think, you know, like I, I see that I feel like in the way that you lived your life. And I think similarly in the way that I lived mine, especially recently is like, the more you opt out of these boxes, the more people you meet that are in those places. And I think then you're starting to like, then honestly reform these interesting groups and communities around people that are opting out of the traditional.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, I don't know, I guess the more I, I sort of journey through my own life and interacting with other people, the more I try to, Use or or elicit compassion. I mean, I think one of the tricky things is, um, I don't know. It's easy for me to sort of go to a place of why did anybody oppress me, or you know, every, for everything from kids in school when I was little who made fun of me to um, to adults that I deal with in my everyday life who feel like they're they're rejecting me in some way or asking me to fit in in some way, which is a sort of implicit put down. And I try to, um, I don't know, I I guess I, not try, I think I, the more, I'll think about it from a selfish point of view, because I actually think that's, we're all selfish and we're all motivated by selfishness, which doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing. But I understand the world better when I'm compassionate, when I think um, every choice that every person makes is probably the result of some, you know, something that pushed them into that. And that it's not. Um, not a um, there's not very much there are some mean people but even mean people are probably um, you know got that way because somebody was mean to them or something I don't This is making me sound like I'm like a Hallmark card thing, but I, (laughs) but when I just, when it all gets so confusing for me and I don't quite know how to understand it, I just think the thing that grounds me the most is a feeling of compassion. And that way I don't, I don't, I I, guess I'm quite suspicious of the, in order to be who I am, I must reject others.
0: Um,
1: and while I definitely, you know, I'm like anybody, right. I look at certain things and go, well, that's fucking bullshit, you know, and make a judgment about it. Um, uh, there's a certain point at which which you can start to form your personality around your negative judgments about the way other people interact and not, uh, actually, and it's sort of like a negative space rather than a positive actualization. Um, there we go. I go on and on. This is the nature of this sort of beast of talking, right? (laughs) Yeah.
0: I love it. Holding (laughs) a
1: microphone makes me feel more interesting than I really am. We'll (laughs) let your listeners be the judge.
0: Uh, Yeah. Um, so was that though, like when you were now, I'm a gay man and I have these kids, was that sort of equally as? It was a regular question there, wasn't (laughs) it?
1: Um, yeah, I think I remember at the time thinking, well, here's yet another place I don't fit. Um, and that, that also was, you know, talking about God, the way society has changed so quickly. I remember looking on Facebook the other day and so many gay couples I know who have adopted kids and are raising kids and, um, and it just was a very radical idea at the time. I mean, there was a fair amount of knee-jerk belief that, you know, gay people were going to poison children's minds or that gay, you know, didn't make good parents. And there was very few laws supporting um, gay couples being able to adopt. And I think there's still a long way to go in all that area, but just in a kind of, there was virtually no acceptance of that. And so there was again, a kind of um, demarcation between sort of gay culture and straight culture that doesn't exist now, right? Where gay men went to Fire Island and looked fabulous and worked out all the time and, you know, smoked crack and had, you know, lots of sex and whatever. And straight people had children and, um, you didn't belong in the club, right? You just, there was no what, um, you know, there's the, the, the term that, um, gay people sometimes use about straight people calling them breeders, right? So it's sort of like, that's the thing, like they procreate and have children and we don't, um, And so I don't know whether I was over-experiencing it because it allowed me to be, you know, oh, poor me. I didn't fit in straight culture, and I don't fit in gay culture either. Um, But it was a definite thing where um, it made it hard to, um, uh, you know, there was always that moment. Like you went on a date with somebody, and I would always say it within the first 10 minutes because I want to get rid of them. But when you would say that thing about having kids, and they would look at you like, what? And you would hear them go through the same machinations that everybody else, apropos of what we were talking about before. Oh, so you were closeted and now you're out. So then you have to, oh, okay, When I'm on a date with you. I guess I better tell you the story, right? So I'm launching into the story and I'm watching their eyes glaze over and thinking uh, probably this isn't the sexiest conversation for me to be having. This is not necessarily going to get me a second date. Uh, And I think it probably lost me lots of dates. Um, So, yeah, trying to figure out how to integrate the sort of being a part-time dad into being gay was uh you know a complex um terrain to navigate uh luckily for me the world changed as you guys got older as that was happening it was literally like almost on a daily basis you could feel the world sort of being more inviting and uh, and i even had some fun with it i used to love to watch people's face who people who to this day it still happens you know people assume i'm gay for whatever reason because uh, I'm flouncing around or something. Oh, You're not that much of I'm, a flouncer. I'm kidding. Um, I, was sort I of mean, being, you work
0: in the theater. Yeah, so. yeah I was being said. I don't, I'm not really
1: that much of a flouncer. Um, I, I was sort of speaking metaphorically, right? So they make some assumption that I'm gay for whatever reason that may be. And then I sort of say I have kids.
0: And you like, are, watch so to their yeah. daughter
1: and you watch their face <laughs> furrow or vice versa when... Um, I, you know, people who know that I have kids and then I say, oh, and this is my partner, Lewis, and you watch them, you know, trying not to do a spit take. And um, so I've actually, I've gotten to the place where I sort of enjoy uh, I think I remember Mika talking about that too, like fucking with people a little bit about, yeah. you know, like the, and it's, it's really fun to sort of yeah. innocently watch people feel destabilized about their inability to compartmentalize you. So sort of the, the, in the inverse trick, right? So, right. um, oh God, I have to get out from underneath the rock of everybody making this assumption about myself. The good, the, the upside of that is, you know, if used correctly, I get to fuck with people a little bit and, um, you know, beat them at their own game, which is sort of fun.
0: Yeah, I talk about this all the time, although I make excuses that make me feel less bad about myself. Like I don't think about it as I'm fucking with people, but I enjoy this in many ways too, to have people kind of question. I think one of the ways that it always happened was that I was always in relationships with older men, so everyone mm. thought it was my dad. Um and I loved not defining it really, just kind of like letting people have to try and put those pieces together in their head. Mm. And oh, almost- you mean like
1: people assuming that you're with your father and, it's, and, right. putting and then putting it like, together, like, oh, then, oh, wait, oh, wait a minute.
0: kissing and like, oh, but how do they deal with that with this age difference and what's going on? And I sort of liked just opting out and allowing, like, I felt like I was doing them or whomever a service of like, yeah, it's good to think about the complexity of the world about, you know, I'm not going to sit here
1: in some kind of tidy little package for them. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. And I think about that just in general too, with people who are, you know, coming either being gay or polyamorous or whatever they are being like very public and very specific and like, about what their life is. And I almost wonder if somehow by doing that, we limit the breadth of possibility Mm -hmm. for people because like my experience is not going to be your experience. And all I'm here to do is, is for you to start like questioning, Hmm, maybe there are options. Like maybe I could do that. Like, what does that mean?
1: Well, you know, it's interesting the whole thing around gender, which is starting to happen now, Mm -hmm. which, which, um, you know, not happening now. It's actually just being dialogued about Right? it's always been happening, but, um, it's, it's substantially more complex than orientation. Um, I think, and I think it much more primal and core. Um, I mean, I remember when you guys were growing up and, um, my partner at the time, whose name was Sean at the time, (laughs) he's since changed his name. Um, it's just funny to say both at the time, right? Literally. It's almost like he only existed when he was in partnership. And after he broke up with me, then it was was like, like he was a different person. Literally. (laughs) 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 Um, But I remember he sort of did what would, you know, at the time would have been called genderfuck. Although now it feels like that's kind of a primitive word because really what he was was non-binary. He was being um, fluid, right? Mm -hmm. So he was a muscular gymnast who liked to wear skirts and combat boots and, um, you know, had um, sleeveless shirts on. So he was both muscly and long hair and a bit of a high voice and maybe some lipstick. And he was just neither male or female he was in this weird um weird i say the word with quotation marks around it space um that was in i'm sure i mean it must have been so intrinsic to who he was at the time and must have in some ways felt like such a um joyful an uh, expression of himself i experienced it almost exclusively as trauma uh because i just wasn't sure what to do with this, right? Especially mm-hmm. having been in a relationship with a woman, a woman, and now being gay, it was like, well, I really wanted to be with a man, not with a man who's also like half, like a mermaid or something. <laughs> <laughs> like, what happened to my boyfriend? Because <laughs> it wasn't something I was aware of that he did when we first met. Um, yeah. Anyway, the point I was making is that I think we're, you know, we're um, in my occupation the whole in and I do a fair amount of work in Minneapolis, St. Paul, which is a very, um, you know, uh, enlightened city in that the kind of gender fluidity is um, very much talked about. Um, And, you know, it's like we now think about I think I work in a place where our bathrooms are not um, visibly enough um, labeled as Um, places where you can choose where you feel whatever suits your gender expression Um, and even just these words that are coming up with our um, you know, the point being is that it's no longer an outlier. They're very in, Where I am, it's very much a central dialogue. Um, even to the point that recently we were, when you audition for a musical, you do dance calls and you do the boys dance call and the girls dance call. And we're all aware that the word boys and girls is, has been now for 40 years inappropriate uh, in terms of women would like to be called women, not girls. And men would like to be called boys, although I'm perfectly happy to be called a boy. Thank you very much. Um, But I remember somebody sort of bringing up the question that what do you do when you have a boy's call and a girl's call and what happens for somebody who's doesn't identify in that way? Um, And it's, um, you know, if I'm honest, it is crippling to think about in a way not that I'm not, I'm up for it. I want people to feel the freedom to be fluid, but it, I guess I'm, what I'm identifying with is it's such a fundamental binary, right? It's like night and day. I just, while well, I was, I was prepared for all different kinds of girls and women and all different kinds of boys and men and men who, you know, acted like Sean, Sean was, even though he was doing gender fuck, was still a man. I mean, I right. knew he was a man, um, you know, again, because what what is that? Like, well, what genitalia he has? now. I mean, like all of this now is up for grabs and, um, and for questions. Um, and it's it's incredibly um, destabilizing on the surface of it, but also clearly liberating. Right. I mean, our minds are these social constructs that we've invented are so limited. I wonder what will be next. I wonder what the next frontier after gender is um conscious unconscious i mean I, I wonder what we'll do machine human i mean i wonder what the next um threshold of yeah it d- d- gets torn down right
0: i i see que- people question i mean this is super taboo and scandalous but like even around race um i don't know if you ever knew that woman rachel dolezal did you follow mm-hmm. this there was this white woman who there's a really good documentary i recommend everyone watch it i think it's on netflix um White woman, totally white, raised by like a white family in the Midwest, but her parents were like severely abusive and also adopted a bunch of black kids and She so felt protective over and identified with the her black siblings that she over a period of time started to like change her appearance in order for it to be black. And then sort of got stuck in this place where she identified as black, even though she wasn't and was like the, uh, head of the, uh, you, know, NAACP chapter oh, in her. Yes. Do you remember this?
1: I think I do know who this is. And then yeah. it was
0: finally found out that she was a white person parading around as a black person and yet had done all of this work for like racial equality. It was such a nuanced, Issue. Mm-hmm. That was like one of the mm-hmm. many things that and people of course were like, that's so fucking offensive. Like I'm not even gonna consider that just no not okay. Um but I was really taken because by Because she it.
1: was appropriating the, the, the exactly. right? She's yeah, appropriating yeah. black culture. Um, right. But then was she really? I mean,
0: right, and then you I think mean, think she about, sort of
1: was, but you almost think what is the story about the you know, the um kid who's raised by a pack of wolves. I don't know whether this is right, fiction or true, right? right? You become like the wolves, you right. know you uh you become right there 's well they 're back to your social construction again that right? yeah. she 's invented a an identity there's a there's also a fair amount of, and i 'm only just now beginning to scratch the surface of it again in minneapolis Saint Paul focus around um, native peoples mm-hmm. and um what that actually means to be native and there was the whole thing with Elizabeth Warren saying that she had some native blood, which I think was offensive to people to right. say that you don 't need to assert your um, blood. Right. What's in your in your blood in order to be native, which is sort of the opposite of what you're saying. So wait a minute. So I can just choose to be a native person, even if I'm one, even if my blood would be one sixteenth, because they're basically saying it's not about it's about your orientation. And I don't know. That's all. It's all fascinating. Um, Again, I guess that this anger around it is a pretty um, people get very, very um, heated and feel very threatened. And, and, and I've just sort of noticed there's, you know, I think this is partly ascribed to the, um, the white fragility, right. That we, because we're privileged, we don't understand what it is to be marginalized or Mm -hmm. don't understand what it is to be, um, seen through the lens of race. Um, and so it must all just be my ignorance and I'm willing to accept a fair amount of that. I think that's probably true. Um, I mean, I think I even sometimes equate my – or try to equate my homosexuality with the experience of other marginalized people, which has been um, more than once rejected as a valid argument, sometimes fairly and I think sometimes unfairly. But my right. point being that um, I, I I wonder if the um, – it's curious to me how the more enlightened, the more complex these situations become – and the more willingness you see, the more time being spent discussing the issue the the more the the anger in the room is palpable and um I wonder what that's a big a bit of a head scratcher for me about um, the anger yeah, the anger, and is it is it just because there's been so much oppression for so long that in a even in a place where um people that have been oppressed are given voice that the first thing that comes out of their And this is, again, an oversimplification, but, but, you know, is, is going to the anger so quickly, just the.
0: It's like the Me Too movement, I feel like. Yeah, right, exactly.
1: I mean, I just sort of wonder if it's not unlike, um, you know, we used to tell the story, getting back to stories about you being a little kid that you would come home and sort of lose it occasionally, both you and me. It would just come home and just sort of like unravel and cry and. And I would think, what happened? And, you know, we talked to your teachers and they were like, oh, well, everything was fine. And I remember somebody telling me the reason why your kids are unraveling at the end of the day is it's because they can. they're in a space where it's safe and they've, they've been pent up all day with whatever their anxieties and worries are. And they come home to you and feel safe and know you're not going to toss them out. And so they just right. <laughs> basically lose it. And is this maybe the equivalent of that, that now that I'm in a room where people are actually listening to me, the first thing I need to say is how angry I am that yeah, I've been well, so you- oppressed.
0: And you maybe have forgotten you said this, and I just mentioned this on the last podcast episode that I posted, but I went through a really hard time the past couple of years and I was really angry and I felt very identified with that anger. And I remember you saying that it made a lot of sense that I felt identified that with that anger, because it was probably the most authentic emotion I'd felt in a really long time. Mm-hmm. Like you just like had to get to that space where like, I have been dismissed, mm-hmm. you know, um, uh, you know, been treated poorly, been ignored, been abused, whatever else. And finally, I'm so fucking angry about this. And like, that's the first step mm. of. And, and so I don't know. I mean, I talk out against my. about the Me Too movement in many ways for this reason, because I don't think anger is a very practical. It's totally, in some forms, healthy and needs to exist without a doubt. But to utilize it to stay there, to not move past that to like, one of the things that really frustrates me in any of these conversations is like, Oh, well, because you're a white cisgender male, like you don't have a right to participate in that, just this discussion it's like, okay, but wait a minute, like you're accusing the white cisgender male of the abuse and yet you won't engage in a dialogue with that person? I just don't (laughs) – that to me blows my mind. Mm. Um, And I get it. It's difficult. Like we're angry. Like why would we want to engage our abusers in discussion? But I don't really see – Or even
1: people that look like – Right. Or, or in oh, any totally. way, right? Right. That's, right. Yeah. I necessarily one reason I say, no, wait, don't hold against me. I'm a big fagula, right? I like trying right. to try to say I have something, I have some card that I can play right. here. Right. Um yeah, you do you feel it. I feel it, it's happened quite quickly. Um, and again, I don't know whether it's just my own, you know, um, subjectivity or being up my own ass too much, but you I suddenly now feel like I don't belong. Um, in spaces where in the past I felt completely welcomed and I have a mixed reaction to that part of me thinks, you know, I, I am now aware of what it feels like for so many other people who Mm -hmm. so have in so many ways have felt like they were, um, not welcome. Um, and the flip side of it is I sort of say to myself, how is it that we're just recreating a new construction where there's somebody on the inside and somebody on the outside? Um,
0: yeah, I mean, it's like shame too, right? I mean, going back to what, you were talking about to, to not give anybody a voice or to relegate a certain type of behavior as unacceptable or not um, worthy of unpacking, I think can proliferate almost the same shame that we're trying to like obliterate yeah, in the first Yeah, I think that's place.
1: well said. I think that's yeah. well said. I um, I guess, you know, to returning to some of the themes where we started with, for me, the the whole thing about life is about the formation of intimate connections, right. With people. And if you, if you go through your life trying to have some kind of integrity or trying around that kind of emotional connection, like trying to be as authentic as I can possibly be and coming from a compassionate place and actually selfishly wanting to be close to people that, that in that space, the rules Feel to me like they need to be different. So in that space, I'm um, I'm not a cisgender white privileged male. I'm just Rod. I'm just a person who has an opportunity to get closer to you and know you better. And depending on who you are um, and how much like me you are or aren't. Um, each of us are more or less likely to step on each other's toes or not to be able to see things from our own perspective. And, and those are the situations in which we're, where the anger is most likely to be triggered. And, and actually, I actually think where the most ground can be covered, you know, it's like, I, I want to bring, maybe it's just cause it's what I know how to do, right? I just want to bring my ability to be close to somebody and to listen and try to be intimate into everything that I do because for me it is, um, it's just the, it's the, it's magic, right? I mean, it Mm -hmm. it it really is the way I know how to get out of any problem is, is listen more carefully and, um, in a genuine connection with some other person. Yeah.
0: Well, we should probably end it there with that. Just peak rod wisdom,
1: the peak of rod wisdom. (laughs) Exactly. Right. Maybe I should start my own new church. I could go on (laughs) television and, um, Television is such a twentieth-century concept. I could go online,
0: (laughs) YouTube series,
1: right? Become an evangelist for connection. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you for talking to me for an hour. And in case anybody wondered, like where I got my ability to talk forever came from.
1: Or as my partner says, do you ever shut up?
0: <laughs> nope.
1: That's, that's maybe a good title for your podcast. Do you ever shut up? Do Hi, ever- this is, do you ever shut up with Anya Kit?
0: Or that'll just be the name of this episode. <laughs> do we ever shut do up? Do we ever shut up? up. With Rod and Yeah.
1: <laughs> yes. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure.
0: Hello again. Hope you guys enjoyed that conversation. It was super fun. I hope to do it again. Um, again, if you want to support the show, Leave a review, some stars, subscribe on iTunes, head over to patreon.com slash Anya Cates, throw a few bucks my way, help keep this thing going and keep me from being poor. Um, I'm going to play you out with a song by Everything But The Girl. This is another Rod Cates uh, specialty. So um, he and his boyfriend uh, that he had when I was growing up, They were super into everything but the girl and this one song in particular. It's funny because my dad, I think, mentioned this on the show that he lives in two places now. He has a job up in um, St. Paul and this song is called Twin Cities. Um, And it just really reminds me of him. And uh, I don't know, there's something about it that just is kind of gay, you know, and I think I can say that. I think I'm allowed to say that. It's a gay song, (laughs) but I love it. And the horns are awesome and it always makes me dance Um, so I thought this would be appropriate to uh, play you out with until next time love you all
2: i